Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. My name is Marty Bennett, president of SMIE Consulting, and today we're going to be answering three questions that we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. And as we do each week, we take our questions that we answer here on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, for those of you who aren't subscribed, uh, you can do so at our website, smieconsulting.org uh, slash subscribe. Uh, drop the link in the chat on our Facebook page. I'm also going to put the link to the most recent edition of the newsletter uh, that you that you would have gotten in your email inbox this this Monday morning. Uh, it comes out every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern. It's a compilation of both social media stories and international education stories, both in the U.S. and globally, and how these overlap, uh, how these two uh, themes often uh, go together in terms, particularly on the recruitment side, but in terms of how you can find out more about uh, studying uh, what the implications of international education, news and stories that are going on in the wider world. And I'll drop in the link if you prefer to get your international education news via LinkedIn. I'm dropping the link to the this week's edition of the LinkedIn version that comes out about a half hour earlier on um, on LinkedIn uh, at about 8:30 a.m. Eastern. So uh, same same content, just uh, different ways of getting it. Between the two sources, we now have almost 1,500 subscribers in the international ed community that are either getting the email or LinkedIn version in their feeds every week. So so glad that you're making that newsletter content a part of your international edification each week. And again, this week's uh, midweek roundup is an expansion on some of the themes we see running through that newsletter. And the first question, we'll get right into it today, is how can generative AI be used for good in admissions? Now, there were a couple of news stories last week that spoke specifically to this, and I'm going to drop the links to the two different stories. They're actually focused on uh, the college admissions process, uh, in particular, the essays that are required for uh, university admissions. Now, uh, the first article is from Politico, and it's an odd source to be uh, seeing an article about college admissions in Politico, but it talks specifically about how, and oftentimes there's a political slant to everything that Politico does, shocker, but uh, the AI college, uh, what do they call it? The AI college admissions fraud factor. So it's actually a, a podcast uh, if you wanted to listen to it. Actually, if you'd rather just read the article, you can do that as well. And its focus starts on China. Surprise, surprise. And the, um, when it comes to uh, the discussion of AI and how it impacts uh, college admissions, they talk specifically how uh, it, this now is the first full admission cycle after the end of China's zero COVID policy, which expired in December last year. Uh, and that uh, what the hope has been that that end of the zero COVID policy is now going to increase uh, the number of new Chinese students that will be flooding back to the United States after about four or five years of declining enrollments from mainland China, particularly for undergraduate students. So whether that uh, will be seen or not, is it's hard to tell. But we did see new visas uh, for uh, issued to Chinese students 
for fall entry were up significantly this past year over 2022. So uh, there's hope that, that there's a rebound coming. It's not probably going to be the full rebound back to 2015 levels of Chinese undergraduates in the United States, but it could soon be coming. But in this article, this Politico article, it talks about how in China now uh, that uh, when U.S. colleges now have been grappling with questions, as the article says, about, quote, how the use of AI-enabled chatbots will change the admission, admissions process for all applicants. It also talks about issues for uh, international students and that in particular about the essay. And within China, uh, obviously, ChatGPT to normal uh, uh, Chinese students behind the Great Firewall is not accessible because it's a Google, uh, it's a it's a product that is not available uh, globally uh, without getting without a VPN to get you over the Great Firewall. But those VPNs are readily available, and most students can find their find a way to these tools. But there are also versions of that um, in uh, local local uh, sources in China now with Alibaba and uh, others coming out with their own versions of it. So uh, what it is, is uh, now a new cottage industry uh, that uh, uh, there are, there's a, there's a, there are college consultancies now that are trafficking in fraud that quote unquote promise students guaranteed admissions through fake transcripts and ghost written statements uh, and essays, that type of thing. So this is uh, it's a little bit of a slam on, on, on Chinese applicants, a little bit probably over the top, but certainly uh, it's reflective of something that's, that's happening globally, not just coming from China. But we do see students looking to use, um, use, their, uh, use tools like generative AI, whether chat GPT or GPT-4 as it is now, or Babel or, or um, some of the other, uh, some of the other uh, different versions of this that are out there, uh, AI, generative AI uh, uh, programs that, that are now being used to generate answers to typical essay prompts that, uh, that are on the Common App or on individual college university statements uh, requirements for admissions. So uh, it's, it's kind of a point-counterpoint. What, what's what's going to happen next? You now see uh, some admissions offices employing kind of uh, AI detectors, using AI to detect AI, which is a little bit weird in the, in the first place. But that whole conversation is happening in college admissions offices nowadays for those that require uh, admissions or admissions essays. Uh, for schools that don't, uh, this is not even a, a part of the conversation, at least in terms of how we make admissions decisions. There may be elements, and the second article that we'll talk about in a few minutes uh, does talk about uh, uh, what, it, what we can do to, uh, to help, uh, help students uh, in terms of how we can use AI to help make our campuses more diverse in the admissions process. So this is a, a, another version of a view of, on the AI perspective in admissions. We'll talk about what that looks like in a little bit. But uh, we, we see in uh, this University World News article uh, that I'll talk about in a second, a version of how AI can be used to detect personality traits that uh, colleges are really trying to identify in college applicants, in first, particularly first-year applicants, as they try to shape their classes. This is co also coming in light of the Supreme Court decision that uh, eliminates uh, the ability to use race as a factor in admissions. What are other ways you can determine uh, uh, to create a diverse admitted student class without looking at race? And there are ways and things that uh, uh, 
individual colleges are using, looking at financial data through zip code information that they can they can glean from applicants. If they're in an area that typically would be from a, a lower income area, that's probably a good chance that they can get a more diverse student body if they if they accept more applicants from certain zip codes. That's a that's been a part of uh, the equation for a lot of universities that haven't been able to use. Uh, college uh, race as a criteria, particularly in California for uh, more than a decade now. So uh, this, this is something that uh, now AI is being used to look at essays, to evaluate essays now, to see if they reflect the kind of data, uh, uh, the kind of qualities that universities uh, identify ahead of time. We want students who are empathetic, uh, who show tendencies towards uh, appreciating, appreciating diverse, diverse opinions and that type of thing. Those are things that now AI can potentially use to help attract uh, the, and admit the right kinds of students that a, a college or university is trying to do. And again, when we're talking these kind of tools, we're talking really the upper end of, of universities uh, that have um, are, are really uh, hyper-focused on the diversifying their uh, their student bodies and that because they can't use race. So we're looking at uh, a piece of the piece of this question here that uh, uh, piece and uh, answering this question is uh, is there good that can come out of using AI uh, from the admission side, not from the student side, but from the admission side to help craft your class uh, in in response to a changing uh, landscape, political landscape, and uh, technological landscape that's now a, a giving tools to, to us that might help us uh, at those more selective schools that really are using essays as part of that evaluation process now to help dig deeper into uh, the kinds of students you really want to, want to attract. And it's, uh, we've also, we're also seeing potential changes in, in future uh, intakes uh, to uh, college admissions processes where they're going to be turning away from the more uh, general essay prompts that typically appear in the college on the common app for example or other standardized application forms uh, to something that's actually more akin to what graduate students have to do a personal statement that is has to be personal about the individual that's applying and have relevant facts and stories and details that would be verifiable we one would assume about that individual student so those personal statements probably are going to be the counterpoint to these essay prompts that are, can really fall victim to be to more generative AI tools on the, from the student perspective. Uh, you also have to look at it from uh, how uh, how we can we should be instructing our students. And again, we don't have any control over the students before they get on our campus. But for my college admission college guidance counselor friends out in the audience, how are you using uh, AI to help improve? your students writing perhaps uh, in terms of focusing their attention on key key facts and key statistics and key messages that they want to get across in their essays. So these are the kinds of things that we um, we want to have control but the reality is we don't. Uh, and it's a cat and mouse game. We move the target to uh, to, to from uh, uh, to that AI now uh, is available for students to use and it is being used probably more than we realize it on campus it's already being used but from prospective students as well so are we uh, is what is our response to it to bet to to react in a more negative way to uh, we're gonna we're gonna fight this every chance we get or is it a way uh, an opportunity to adapt how you view the tools that you have been using to make decisions in the college admissions process to something that's more akin to uh, a value proposition of okay 
what are we really trying to get out of this evaluation process in finding academically qualified students and X, Y, and Z characteristics of students, then what's the best way to get at that? Uh, and that's, a, that's something that is a challenge for all colleges and universities these days. But these two articles really kind of give you both sides of a, a very, uh, very divisive issue, frankly, for a lot of, uh, a lot of college admissions uh, offices and our campuses in general about how we respond to the, the, these tools that are out there. Uh, so a really important piece uh, in terms of uh, that kind of food for thought kind of a question is, are there real positives we can use and leverage in our, uh, in our admissions making decisions, decision making process? Is it maybe not even in, if we don't have essays, is it, way, is it a way for AI to take over in terms of interpreting uh, grades uh, and test scores and, and plugging into formulas and that type of thing uh, from, from scanning material and be able to evaluate that way? That's coming, I'm sure, as well. So there's a lot out there that uh, AI and uh, this, these technologies will evolve, I'm sure, and develop new uh, capabilities that we're, we haven't even thought of yet. So, uh, but it, it's, there is some room for good here. Uh, in terms of how, how we are evaluating. The challenge is, will these changes that we make in using AI to detect, to detect qualities and characteristics like this University World, World News article pretends to, or portends, uh, that would be appropriate in a way to change the way we do things for campuses that use essays, that use AI to detect the qualities you want in essays that you, your students are reading, is the counterpoint going to be, well, have an AI, uh, generative AI piece that writes to those qualities if they're known? And that's, that's one of the things that maybe is the, is the great equalizer that maybe they won't know what kind of qualities uh, institutions are looking for when they're using generative AI to write their essays. So a lot of uh, uh, interesting discussions happening at conferences uh, uh, around the country, I'm sure, and around the world in terms of these, to these tools that we have. So let's shift gears to our second question, and it's one that I always love to uh, hear from hear from my colleagues about how they respond. And I had um, had an opportunity uh, to uh, to chat with our, our team at UNLV about response times. Uh, it's going to be part of a part of an ongoing um, discussion we're going to have about how we can improve our response times, because uh, when it when it asked uh, current our international prospective students were asked in recent surveys, and there's a one uh, that is highlighted in an ICF Monitor article that I've just posted. Uh, it's from an ICF, ICF Insights magazine that's going to be published this, this month in November. This article came out last week, and it's uh, content from Keystone. Uh, Keystone is, uh, is, has been in the business of Email, uh, email comm flow uh, improvements, uh, working with institutions to take over that process in a lot of cases, but it, uh, working with institutions and how they respond to students, when they respond. So <clears throat> the Keystone folks have been in this field for a while, so they're not just coming out, out this blind with this study, and they have very focused questions that they ask that kind of lead to the kinds of the answers that um, I think are going to be most valuable for uh, university folks. Now. Keystone in this year uh, asked over almost 24,000 students across 195 countries how universities could improve their communications. Uh, and the, one of the top three recommendations was speed of response. Uh, that 24% had identified uh, speed of response was a top three uh, con uh, concern in terms of what, how they could improve along with availability of information and quality of response. 
So quality does factor into this, not just speed. So in terms of the most important things that universities could do in terms of how they respond. And some of us might have auto-generated responses that come in if we have a intake form on our, on our sites that get, or any standard inquiry that comes in. Maybe there's an auto-generated email that goes right back out just to make sure that that student is acknowledged uh, and seen as, uh, oh yeah, we thank you for, for your inquiry. Uh, what, I, what, this, uh, what this article uh, talks about in terms of the results of this survey is that, and this is the kicker, 62% of students expect a response from a university within 24 hours or less. And that's an increase of 21% over 2022. So in the last year, this means basically from 41% up to 62% now expect of students, prospective students, expect a response within 24 hours. How many of you can, what is our response? Some of it might, if you have an auto-generated, does that count as a response? Probably, but then that might go to the reasons why they want quality responses, not just, and personal responses, not just a response, that they expect a response within 24 hours. So they're getting increasingly impatient, and surprise, surprise, this, uh, this generation of students, this uh, Gen Z or Gen Alpha, as we're, we're entering into the first uh, groups of uh, Gen Alpha students, or not probably college age yet, but the Gen Z students certainly are, are very impatient bunch. They expect answers right away uh, because they grew up in a digital world where they could get all their answers right away, online at least, at least querying Google or whatever search engine they choose to, to use. So there was the, 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 your prospective students now are 21% more likely to say, we want a response. Now 62% of them are saying they want a response within 24 hours. How many of you can put your hands up now and say you can give a personalized response to every student inquiry within 24 hours? Not going to be a whole lot of folks out there doing that right now. But it's at least something to shoot for. Uh, and that obviously has to do with bandwidth that you have in your staff time in your offices. That has to do with if you don't have an automated response, what is the, what is the, is the process? Uh, we have, uh, when you get leads from college fairs, how do those get handled? Do they get an automatic response once you've put them into your system? Thanks for meeting us at the fair, blah, blah, blah. Does that start that conversation? So whatever that point of contact is, 62% want a response within 24 hours. So uh, the, uh, that is the expectation from students and that it takes, uh, uh, in terms of uh, looking at the data at most universities are failing to respond promptly. Uh, a mystery shopping uh, research project that uh, was conducted by one of Keystone's uh, partners, Edified, involved 120 universities, and that, and that found that one in four student inquiries received no response, zero, zilch, from university. Uh, that's shocking that uh, students responding are requesting information from you and they 25% of you never respond, that's atrocious. Uh, I know there are, there are universities that will say it's two or three days uh, that are in terms of a response time to respond to a prospective student inquiry. That's clearly outside the window of what the expectation is from students. And that's something that we want to Maybe you have an auto response that says that when students do inquire that way, that does go out and say, hey, our standard response time is, one to, is two to three days. And if that's the case, at least you're getting that out there and let them know that we recognize you have inquired, we're gonna get back to you, just we can't do it right now or within 24 hours. But at least have something that when an inquiry comes in, get it out to them and say, hey, 
uh, we acknowledge that you have, have a question and concern or you want information, we'll get to you as soon as we can within a certain time frame. And then that helps to manage those expectations because is responding in 24 hours realistic? In most cases, no, with a personalized response. But uh, for most of our universities, that's uh, at least 75% of us uh, were, are responding at a, in, in, in any length of time. So I think it's, it's really important that um, when you look at students who make inquiries before they apply, because we've all talked about the stealth applicants, uh, they actually only represent about 17% according to this UniQuest research that uh, if they're acquiring 17, they represent 17% of all enrollments, that if they have a great inquiry experience in terms of response time, that increases their chances of accepting admission offers more than twice as often as others that don't have a good inquiry experience if they do ask those questions. So there's 17% of students that are making inquiries to you directly, and these are kind of the dreams that you hope you get considering how many of your applicants come as stealth applicants, that 17% of your, of, of, your, of your potential applicants are asking questions, only 17%. So that means that, that we talked about the website, uh, how, how well your website communicates your value to your prospective student audiences a couple weeks ago. But this one certainly makes it, reinforces that case is that for those that you do get inquiries from, you have to treat those like gold. They are actually asking for help before they apply. And those are the ones that you hope that you have the opportunity to interact with and convince them that yes, we're the right institution for you. And then that leads them to uh, a better experience through the admissions process and onward. So great data from the folks at uh, Keystone through their recent survey and uh, also through the Edified project there. So I really recommend that uh, if you haven't read that article, it, it's, it's very, very much worth your time. It's a quick read, but uh, the data points that you can share internally within your admissions offices, internationally in, in particular, I think would be very valuable, uh, at least eye-opening to say the least in terms of are you really doing a good job in terms of meeting those expectations. So really important uh, to see that um, in terms of does speed matter when communicating with the prospective students? Absolutely. Uh, and the fact that 62% now expect a response within 24 hours should be the light, the light bulb that goes on for all of us in, in, in international admissions. So let's get right to our final question of the day. This is a fun one. Is Canada getting its act together internationally? Uh, now, for most of my U.S. colleagues, this, this, this conversation may be uh, a little bit strange because uh, you've heard me talk in the past about how uh, in Canada, they have, they have policies that really open the door wide for international students and provide a very clear pathway to becoming, international, uh, to becoming permanent residents. And we talk about this in, in, all the time when we've talked about how their numbers of international students in Canada has been going through the roof in the last uh, three, four years, even through the pandemic has been escalating considerably, that there were 800,000 in uh in Canada, international students in Canada last year. They're going to be hitting 900,000 in calendar year 2023. They're pushing a million folks in the next year if we're not careful or if they're not careful, depending on how you look at it. So the dynamic of international students applying to Canadian colleges and universities is very different than it is here in the U.S. There are less than 100 colleges or universities, uh, bachelor's degree granting institutions in Canada. There are a couple 300 uh, 
vocational colleges, uh, public and private, uh, that the numbers of students that attend, the international students that attend the university level uh, courses is about half of the total. I don't have exact numbers, but I've been told from reliable sources in Canada that about half of uh, international students in Canada are at the university level, so say roughly 400,000 from last year's data, and roughly half are in this vocational program, uh, in the public and private vocational colleges in Canada. So another, another 400,000 there. Now, uh, what has happened in recent weeks uh, is, as a number of different things, Canada has really been exploding all over the news with uh, challenges as the fall term has begun. Certainly there was le uh, some issues that happened over the summer, uh, where uh, late summer where uh, there was a, a diplomatic spat between India and Canada. And Can India is Canada's number one source of international students, uh, has been for many years now. Uh, that, that could potentially, this diplomatic spat could lead to uh, a d decrease in the, uh, in the number of Indian students going to Canada. And that could be devastating for some of these uh, colleges. Uh, not necessarily the universities, but for the colleges for sure. And the reason being is part of this diplomatic spat involved uh, India kicking out 20 or 40, uh, I can't remember the exact number, diplomats, Canadian diplomats working in India. Uh, who um, uh, and those diplomats have responsibilities for vetting student study permits, uh, our equivalent of student visas. So, in the largest country for uh, international students coming to Canada, internet that there is now a prohibition or, or, or a, a significant reduction. I think it was over half of, of staff had to leave the country because they were no longer uh, part of this diplomatic tit for tat. There, uh, India called for parity in the number of. Uh, diplomats each country could have in each other's country. Uh, so Canada obviously had far more in India than India had in Canada. So that led to this uh, expulsion, if you will, of all these, more than half of uh, the diplomatic corps for Canada and India. Uh, so what that's been, uh, that's been on the radar. You've he heard the stories of uh, all, the, uh, all the challenges on, on uh, Canadian universities with housing. Uh, we've seen uh, this uh, Cape Breton University in uh, in, the, in the Atlantic provinces, uh, they it's uh, has over 9,000 students now. 70 uh, percent, 9,100 students right now. 75 percent of those 9,100 are over, from overseas. Uh, and vast majority of those are from India. As a result, they've been having huge problems with housing huge problems with classroom, shortage of classroom space. So as a result, that university has now planned to reduce its overall enrollment to, four, to from 9,100 to 7,000 students within the next four years. And you know where those reductions are gonna come from. They're gonna come from the international audiences because they're domestic, they're on over a bigger domestic cliff than we have in the United States there in terms of that province, that area of the Atlantic provinces in Canada, declining populations the international students are, are, are helping to keep, <laughs> keep their numbers up. And obviously it's gone too far in the other direction now and that those are gonna be uh, dropping here. So um, you saw an increase, and the one of the reasons why uh, this particular university, Cape Breton University, is, is going into uh, reducing, reducing mode is they had an increase of 57.4% in their enrollment 
2023 compared to 22. That's just in, in, in phenomenal. How did that ever happen? It's happened because of booms in international applicants. So uh, even though universities are not immune from the kind of challenges that uh, these uh, these uh, these uh, policies are uh, have, that have really gone unchecked for a while. Uh, you've, the, there's the articles that I've, I'm sharing. The first one is from the Pi that talks about Canada's new institutional framework, trusted inter institutional framework. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. The second article is about the Cape Breton University that we just mentioned. The third is uh, the <clears throat> the policy that uh, India has undertaken uh, to uh, or advice actually that experts in India, again, Canada's number one source of, uh, of, Indi of international students uh, are from India. And the um, is this, this is from uh, experts in India that write about this for, uh, for um, Canada-bound students that uh, they are being told, according to this article, uh, explore other countries. Experts advise as Canada partially halts visa services. There was a partial halt of visa services uh, in recent in the past week. Uh, that they halted it in three cities: Bengaluru, Mumbai, and Chandigarh. And uh, they are operating only in New Delhi uh, that in this past week. So that's forcing kind of a bottleneck. That's part of the diplomatic changes here that, that uh, we were talking about earlier. The reduction in uh, Canadian diplomats allowed in in, in India. That's re reducing the in-country bandwidth to process visas. Now they're only being handled in New Delhi. So uh, that is forcing uh, by, uh, uh, educa educational agents and other agencies that advise students about study abroad options. Hey, keep your options open now. It's not just Canada. You can't just look at Canada anymore because you might not be able to get your visa processed in time. Uh, but the point of counterpoint to that is uh, uh, by um, the IRCC, that's uh, the Immigration and uh, refugees and citizenship canada uh, government organization that is is expressing their intent that uh, that they do expect to return to normal uh, by uh, early 2024 and the reason they say that is that they're going to offshore some of the visa processing uh, these immigration staff members from the that have been working in India have, are being reintegrated into offices in Canada and the Philippines to process specifically the Indian uh, student or study permits coming in, just as a, a way to balance out that expulsion of the diplomats. They're, they're not losing their jobs; they're just not able to do their jobs in India. So Canada's response is okay. They're going to do their. Some of them are going to be in Philippines uh, processing visa study permits. Some are going to be back in Canada doing that. So they're saying that they'll be back up to speed by early 2024. So maybe that's uh, that's a, that's a light at the end of the tunnel for them. But the challenge here again is this new uh, re the recognition that kind of what Cape Breton has done is they're capping enrollment. They're going to re reduce their total enrollments over the coming years. Is that you also see the go national governments realizing okay we've got finally got to step in and do something here. Uh, they've introduced this recognized or trusted institution framework through which uh, universities uh, in particular that have um, been providing adequate outcomes for the success of international students, in their words, uh, can now uh, be on this trusted path. Uh, they, they're, they're not those, those what, what does that mean to be provide adequate outcomes for the success of international students? That's not spelled out yet. I'm sure there'll be ongoing conversations and articles about that. 
but uh, the, this trusted institutional framework is meant to get after the bad actors out there, to punish the bad actors, and to reward the good ones, according to the um, uh, Mark Miller, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. So uh, there's, uh, it t it's taking action against all the students that have uh, been, uh, who've, who've tr come into the country with fake documents uh, to uh, fake admission letters uh, to, uh, to, to, and uh, to get their study permits. Uh, that, this is something that was, uh, I, I realized a couple of years ago, but I'm sure many of my colleagues now when they will, will see articles like this, uh, the details of which are Canada will now be, and get this to everybody in a post-Sevis world, we in the U.S., we've uh, had this happen since since Sevis uh, was introduced, even before that when uh, I-20s that we issue as institutions are part of a government database that track all the admissions inf uh, information that institutions provide. Uh, it's already there uh, and is evaluated by consul first consular affairs at posts around the, around the world, U.S. embassies and consulates when they meet with students for the interview. We do things in the U.S. that most other countries don't do. Uh, most important of which is that in-person visa interview for those who have never had U.S. visas before. That's something that no other country is really doing, none of the other major destinations. Others uh, just have offices that process all the paperwork, visa paperwork. Uh, we also, unlike Canada, we've had a system in place where uh, institutions, the, the letters of admission, LOAs, uh, that a lot of uh, in, uh, Canadian institutions uh, have uh, that issue, there's no check on that, uh, as that they're actually verified uh, as official uh, from uh, before the students get their study permits. There's no way for that to happen. But now they're going to be implementing that process. We'll see some of that. So I said, I said in my post this week on this topic, it's a, uh, an article that just came out this week. It says, "Welcome to the 21st century, Canada." Uh, this is something that's been uh, been happening uh, for quite a while, uh, and now it's uh, Canada uh, that we've been doing for quite a while in the U.S. Not that we've been perfect, but it certainly helps eliminate a lot of the fraud, particularly as you see in the East Canadian cases where we've had students show up with fraudulent letters of, uh, of admission to get, their, to get onto, onto college campuses in, in Canada. So is, it, is Canada starting to get its act together? Just about, yeah. So it's moving in the right direction. So we'll see what, that, what impact that has on overall numbers to get down some of the fraud and some of the abuse in the system there. And other institutions like Cape Breton will start to adjust their policies accordingly and realize, well, we've overcommitted. We don't have the housing space. We don't have the classroom space. We've got to cut back. So what does that mean financially for institutions in Canada? Whole other question, but I'm sure we'll be discussing this again in the weeks and months to come. That's all we have for you this week on the Midweek Roundup. Appreciate your attention today, and hopefully you found a few nuggets this week that uh, you can take back and, and implement uh, at your home campuses. So until we speak again, next week I'm going to be attending the CAIE conference in Las Vegas. Very happy that uh, it's a conference we've been working on uh, hosting uh, for the last couple of years uh, at UNLV uh, where I work. I work remotely for them, so uh, that conference is happening Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week. So I'm going out Sunday, coming back next Friday. Uh, we, so we're going to be meeting with future partners, current partners, people we're going to be signing agreements with that week. Uh, we're hosting the opening reception on our campus. The conference itself is happening at the Mirage Hotel 
on the Strip in Las Vegas. So very excited about next week. A lot of efforts gone in by our entire international team and campus to make this event happen next week. But I'll be coming to you uh, from uh, from the from the conference next week, next Wednesday. So uh, look for another live shot from the conference floor. Uh, next week for me from the CAIA conference. And that's the Conference of the Americas for International Education. So in case you're wondering what that acronym is. So institutions from Canada all the way down to Chile, everywhere in between, including the Caribbean. There's even a delegation of about 26 uh, university representatives from China coming. Uh, uh, there's pavilions for Costa Rican universities, Brazilian universities, a very robust uh, conference, about five, 600, 600 people, I think, will uh, be attending this one. So uh, our version of uh, EAIE, or API, happening uh, next week in Las Vegas. So that's where I'll be. Uh, looking forward to chatting with you then. Have a great day. Cheers.